You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. I'm Matt Botker, my two great friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist from the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark's back two times in a row. We're sorry we're delayed. Dr. Mark, you're back in the, in the well, on the webcam. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. This is awesome. And Mark, you're going back next week, right? Yep. Going back to the hospital next week. And so we'll see how things are going. We're definitely seeing an increase in case counts here in Colorado, both in the community and in the hospital. And so remains to be seen, I think, but we're all starting to brace for a, our kind of big fall peak. That, 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 let's, let's put a bookmark on that because that's something we didn't talk about off the, the recording that I want to bring back because it was like a few days ago, I was at work. And my wife was like, hey, this lady came by, because we have a green belt behind us, because so there's like a low-level fence, so we see everything that goes on. This, this lady came by and said, there was like a huge peak ever, the biggest peak ever in Colorado, and we're going to go on lockdown again. And she's like, what's going on? Tell me. So I looked into it, and I just do the sources that Mark and you guys recommend. So I went to the website, and I saw there was like a huge positive case, I think on October 11th, even mm-hmm. higher than back in April and May, or even highest, highest peak. But then there was a second chart that put it in perspective to some kind of equation to count for the increased number of testing, right? Mm-hmm. And then it dropped significantly to just barely a little bubble. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted, and maybe we could just talk about that briefly right now, since you brought it up. Are we seeing, so when it, when it looked like on the graph, the first graph was like, man, we're out of control. Second graph, we really aren't having much of a difference. So we are mm-hmm. seeing a pretty decent increase increase in Colorado, are we? Mark? Yeah, so I think across the country, we're starting to see a slow build of incre- increasing cases again, for sure. And I, But that being said, I think that sort of uh, metric is important where we go and look at the way that the uh, that compares to the number of tests that we have done. So I don't know, Stephen, do you have any ideas? I think one of the things that we should just talk about right at the, at the top is if you have some go-to places for people in the community mm-hmm. to look at information, because I know that there's different groups that are capturing information and putting it up there. So Stephen, do you have anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I, so I always look at the, lately my go-to source has been the Johns Hopkins tracker. And so I try to triangulate between the raw number of cases in a given state and the positivity. They have some really nice graphics that show the number of tests, the percent positive tests, and then the total number of cases. And between those three things, then you can sort of sort out, Matt, what you were talking about, how there really has been a huge increase in the number of tests that have been run in many places across the country. And so when we see these big rises in positive cases, we can't really compare that to what was happening in the spring because we were doing so little testing back then that the fraction of cases we were grabbing was was, was quite small. So so that's what I've been looking at. And it, it, it's, it's true. I mean, it, there are many places that look like they're really surging way past the transmission that we saw earlier this year. And I think in most cases, that's that's probably not the case yet. You know, the other one that I had a question about, let me pull up the the name of this group, because I was using this a little bit in the first wave is the IHME COVID-19 projections, and that's available at the covid19.healthdata.org. And the nice thing about that I'd be interested to hear, Stephen, if you have any experience kind of with that group and where they're getting their data. But the nice thing is that they generate graphics and they break them down by a little bit more specifically with geographic areas. And they have some, what I'm sure, pretty smoothed curves in terms of projections, but it kind of gives an interesting day-to-day 
you know, analysis of where we're at. Do you know, Stephen had meant to ask you that before we got on, but have you used their data at all? Or Yeah, so IHME is, is using publicly available data and they're generating projections. And unless they've updated their algorithm from earlier this year, their their projections are actually kind of suspect. I think they're not they're not mm-hmm. terrible, but the the issue with their model is that it's again, and I, I haven't updated myself on this in a while, but but the model at least that they were using earlier this year was not an epidemiological model. It was basically just they were fitting a bell curve to the observed cases. And so it didn't allow for the possibility of resurgences of infection at all. So it tended to generate much rosier mm-hmm. projections of what might be happening later in the year than was then 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 actually played out with with the subsequent resurgences of infection across the country. So I think that in terms of now casting, in terms of like actually getting a sense for what's going on currently in the epidemic, it can be useful for sure. But I would have to go in and look under the hood to see what's happening with their updated model before I could say I could I, I'd really trust it for sure. And where do you look for mortality data? You can find it in a lot of places. So the Hopkins tracker produces that as well. The New York Times actually has has pretty good visualizations of trends in mortality over time. And mm-hmm. again, that's mortality that's associated with COVID-19. The CDC also has some graphics that, and the New York Times do as well, that are looking at just excess mortality overall by state and across the country, which I think is helpful. And excess mortality based off of the baseline from like the previous three years or so. So I think that that helps give a sense mm-hmm. too for, for how much additional risk of death has been increased across the population as a whole as a result of the pandemic. Okay. The question that I keep getting, and I know we talked about it briefly last time, is why why are we seeing these spikes, you know, similar to the one, Matt, that you were saying, you know, that your your wife heard about on this when she was out in the, the green space, that, you know, we're, we're seeing this huge spike locally. But why have our, it hasn't looked yet like our mortality rates, <clears throat> at least locally, have gone up that much. Last week, Stu, you talked a little bit that there's a, a lag. We know that you know a lot of the s- severe manifestations of COVID happen seven to 21 days after initial diagnosis. But I want to know if there's other things that might be in play there and just kind of how you think about that data, or if that's just a fluke of looking too locally, and if you're seeing different trends on a more national or international basis. Yeah. So for the recent rise in cases, I think it's just too soon for that to really manifest and arise in mortality yet, because both because of the, the clinical lag between infection and severe outcomes, but also because a lot of the infections that we're seeing right now are concentrated in younger people. And so mm-hmm. that requires another additional couple epidemiological steps before it reaches the vulnerable populations who will then end up in the hospital. So there's sort of that additional epidemiological lag in addition to the clinical lag, which can lead to really substantial delays between the rise in cases that we're seeing and the increase in mortality. I think a useful place to look for at this actually is is the case of Florida. And so I think actually again the some of the, the some of the graphics and data visualization in the New York Times sort of displays this pretty clearly and this is just on sort of the dashboard that they have state by state. Um, where in Florida we saw the the raw number of cases peaked early in the epidemic, sort of in the early spring, and then there was this massive rise in cases during the summer. And you can see that mortality in Florida also peaked both times. But even though the second rise in cases was substantially higher than the first, the total number of deaths, the peak number of deaths was basically the same between the two. So basically mm-hmm. their second wave in terms of mortality was was roughly the same as the first. 
And that I think that again reflects the increase in testing that we had available. So we were able to detect that rise in cases and we were able to see both a higher rise and we were able to detect that increase earlier. So the increase in testing actually leads to even an additional delay compared to what we were seeing earlier in the spring. Because since we're doing more testing, we can just see those rises a little, we have the sensitivity of seeing those rises is a little bit higher. So all of this sort of works together to both reduce the, basically you, you have fewer deaths per observed case and the delays are a little bit longer that we're observing because of all of these different factors in play. The last thing that might be in play here too, is that some of the, the people who are most susceptible to the virus may have already succumbed to it. So speaking about in Massachusetts, a lot of our biggest outbreaks earlier in the pandemic were concentrated in nursing homes. And those populations have really been huge, hugely hit hard. Just, yeah, really, there, there are some nursing homes in Massachusetts that really had massive outbreaks in across the Northeast. And so many of the people in that elderly population have already died. And so so that's that's part of it too, is that it's already ripped through some of those populations. And so there are fewer of them left to infect. So just to summarize, and one other question I had real quick, and then I just want to kind of go through the points that you just said, because I think these are, these are good and they help us as we're thinking mm-hmm. about, I feel like we're entering a phase in which we're going to want to be able to look at the data again, um, that similar to in early spring, when it was really helpful to have a sense of where we're at, that that's going to be something that's just going to be helpful for people as we make plans and as we kind of adjust our lives again, potentially in the face of a second surge. So any, any thought that there's an issue around area under the curve? So the sense that there was that we're looking at the height of the peak, but not how long that peak was sustained over time. And that sometimes we may reach a similar, you know, test positivity rate, but then that falls really quickly, and that re- results in a much less, you know, total number of cases because the air, the curve isn't stretched over time. Does that make sense? Right. Any thought? Is that contributing at all, or? Yeah, and so by area under the curve, that's basically just the cumulative number of deaths or the cumulative number of cases that have occurred. Is that, that right? And so, yeah, that's exactly so right. And so when we look at these visualizations, a lot of times we see a spike. Right. But the spike accounts for the number of cases on a certain day often, you know, or the number rather than a cumulative measure all the time. And then there's there's others that say, you know, what, what are the cumulative number of cases in the population? I just want to make sure that we understand sort of the way that those different measurements interact with one another. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really important, you know, as, as you're saying to, to look at this area under the curve and the the cumulative number of cases and deaths as well, because sort of what we've seen is this pretty persistent level of infection across the country, even though it's geographically very variable. But if you aggregate across the entire United States, we, we sort of see elevated cases and um, concurrently elevated mortality that's sort of been consistent over the course of the year with some ebbs and flows as well. So I think you're right. If we want to really get a true picture of what's going on, that also is an important metric. And part of the reason why I think we, uh, why the acute rises in infection are still important is just because cases beget more cases. And so if you have a sharp rise in cases, then those can contribute to other cases unless you act quickly. And that can really lead to an overshoot of the amount of mortality that you would have if you just sort of had a flatline epidemic. So an epidemic that's spiky is generally worse in the long run than an epidemic that's flat. And so there is some value to keeping things flat and some value to responding when things spike. 
And so I think that that's still worth bearing in mind. But uh, but you're right for for the overall picture of things. I think the the area under the curve, the cumulative number of cases and deaths, is 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 important too, because that's that's really a fuller picture of where we've come and and what's yeah, just what's going on overall. So just to sum up, for my sake, we've got a little bit about cumulative number of cases. There's a we're capturing more of the total number of cases than we were in the early spring pandemic. So we see more cases now because testing has been expanded. The demographics of who is sick has changed pretty significantly, that in the first wave, we might have seen a lot more highly vulnerable populations, whereas these current spikes are um, not exclusively, but largely younger population of healthier people. And then the crucial aspect that you said was that there's both a lag from the disease course where you see test positivity and then mortality later, but there's also this kind of epidemiologic lagging that's going on, right, where we get these test positivities, but it's only once they progress one or two more steps into the population that we get into groups where we're going to see higher mortality. Is that fair to what you're saying? And so the other things, you know, the other questions that is, is it related to some sort of a change in the character of the virus or something like that? I don't think that that's, there's any evidence that that's the case. Mm -hmm. I think this is the same thing we've been dealing with from the very beginning. And then also the question of, are we getting, do, do I get any credit, right? Not me personally, but do, do clinicians get any credit that are we just getting better at this? And I think, you know, that leads, we should talk a little bit about this solidarity trial yeah. next, I think, because that kind of, that folds right into one of the, the big pieces of news this week um, too. So any other thoughts, Matt, from your perspective as we're talking about that stuff? No, I think that's great. I mean, me living on a campus or working on campus is exactly kind of what I'm seeing. I mean, Boulder, we've heard it took some pretty extreme measures and continued them for a little bit. And numbers dramatically dropped, I mean, down to like, you know, maybe 250 in a day, uh, positive cases to zero in like eight days or 10 days. And then the same questions were, were resounding among Boulder about even we had the spike, we're not seeing the cases and mortality. And we, you know, Stephen, you kind of fleshed it out in more than just one dimension, but our one dimension was, look, yeah, exactly. It's uh, 18 to 22 year olds. That's why we locked them down for two weeks or three weeks now. And uh, that, you know, and now some are leaving, of course, this is the difficulty. Some are sick of being in a place by which they can't go out and barely even get groceries. That's an exaggeration, of course. And so they leave to go back home. (laughs) So now they're flying home to their parents uh, because they can't take anymore. So now we have uh, an unfortunate negative consequence that's going to take a few more weeks before we see that. And we're not even going to see it in Boulder now. So that, that, that even makes it even more complicated. People are flying home. And so where are the cases? Well, they're in Massachusetts now. You're welcome, Stephen. They're in, they're in, they're in all the places, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's complicated, right? So, and then you, you exactly, t- you, you dovetailed perfectly in because you were, I was yeah. thinking in my mind, yeah, what about the clinicians? What about the, the advancements of there? But you're, you'll flesh it out. It's more complicated than I even proposed, Mark, what you told me off the record. But it seems like, again, it's kind of complicated. So go ahead and talk about how this this study adds any value to this conversation. Yeah. So the Solidarity Therapeutics Trial is a huge multinational study um, that was looking at the major, such sort of the front runners for our therapeutics. And it has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet. Uh, right now, what we see is a preprint that was published on October 15th. Um, so hot off the presses. And what it's looking at in particular, I'll just kind of, let me pull up the study characteristics here so we can. So they looked at remdesivir, they looked at hydroxychloroquine, 
they looked at lopinavir and interferon beta. So those are kind of four of the large therapeutics that we've talked about throughout. Um, this wasn't looking at convalescent plasma. This wasn't looking at dexamethasone in this particular study here. It's big. So I, it's somewhere around 11,000 patients. And in, let's see, I'm sorry, bear with me for one second. I just wanted to pull up, kind of give a scope of this here. So yeah, 11,300 patients entered from 405 hospitals in 30 countries in all six of the World Health Organization regions. And so, the, you know, the idea here is that you have a big study that spans a lot of different care settings. You're trying to get information that's really generalizable and trying to get at the heart of like, what's the actual effect of this drug when you have evened out the effects that you get for variations in geography, variations in population, things like that. Well, unfortunately, what the, the preliminary results that they're reporting here are that none of those drugs, um, including remdesivir, showed a mortality benefit at 28 days. So they didn't show a statistically significant benefit in mortality at 28 days. That's a little bit different. So we, we have seen some promising, some slightly more promising data about remdesivir, but I want to remind us that a lot of the data that we were seeing about remdesivir was about days days of illness and that this 28-day mortality thing is a really, that's kind of a hard, hard not meaning difficult, but hard meaning that's a, a rather rigorous study endpoint, right? When you have mortality, you know, and you see, if you can demonstrate in a randomized control trial a mortality benefit from a therapeutic, that is one of the most rigorous ways that you can kind of support the clinical use of something. So the question now immediately is, so that the WHO publishes this big trial in preprint form that doesn't show a statistically significant benefit, do we stop using all these drugs? And that is a much more nuanced question, I think, because it's not saying that there's absolutely no benefit, and it's not saying that in certain settings or and necessarily in certain subgroups that there is a benefit. And so we're going to need a little bit more higher resolution data. We're going to need what the kind of flurry of editorials that will follow this after it gets published both in preprint form and in peer-reviewed form, and really dig into the methods and see what's going on here. Because often in a big study like this, there may be ways to analyze some of that data and give us a little bit better sense of clinically what we should be doing. So is this is this practice changing in the next, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours? I would say no. I think we're going to need to have a little bit better understanding of what they're looking at. That being said, I do think that in terms of you know, what, what one would hope that maybe we would have something that has a huge mortality benefit. We're not seeing that in this preliminary data. And I, I would be surprised if that finding is overturned. I think there may be more nuances to it, but I'm not expecting that we're going to have, you know, one of these four drugs is going to be uh, massively helpful in terms of mortality when we introduce it. So that's the solidarity trial. It's available if you just Google WHO solidarity trial results, and you can see the preprint there and get a little bit more information. And Mark, you can send that to me. I can put it in the show notes. They can get it directly Great. there as well. So, I mean, would you be saying then, I mean, I've said it's, it's in the reality, it's probably more nuanced, but on kind of on the, on the back of what Stephen was saying, uh, the complexity that maybe then that the clinical stuff, the therapeutics, isn't necessarily a contributor at this point in time yeah. to the... I do think that we potentially are seeing a, a benefit. I don't know if necessarily we're seeing it on a population level or not with dexamethasone, um, but probably we're seeing a little bit there. And I do think that as we get a little bit better sense of 
the disease process. There's sort of implicit things that come, you know, from experience with the disease process that aren't easily captured in studies, but there's sort of a sense, you know, for how, how we treat these patients. Our processes might be a little bit more streamlined in a lot of our institutions. And so I do think there's probably, I think we're doing a better job than we were in March. Mm -hmm. I do think that. And I think we'll continue to learn and continue to improve over the next several months. And, but again, I think that, that as we look at the big, big picture epidemiologic data, a lot of what we're seeing is the characteristics of this virus and as it plays out amongst different populations and over different time periods. And I'm assuming this doesn't take into consideration the complexity of, I don't know if you call it cocktails or whatever that you guys do with remdesivir and then in conjunction with maybe a steroid, you know, along the way and in, in, the, in those multi-factor yeah. and how that right. might cause. And there some. are statistical methods that can help us get at that. And so we can get, take raw data and start to, and especially if there's study design that's appropriate that you have crossovers and groups and things like that. So it's not impossible to get that information, um, but it takes a little bit more kind of uh, statistical analysis to get that sort of information. Okay. I mean, this is like a, I think this is the most natural conversation we've had in quite a while because this leads to the next part, which I think this is just, we're just adding these kind of layers. Stephen, you just hit that. We just talked about the idea of the death rates are not increasing the suggestions that that might, that, that that might come about from this. And then you have this study that just came out, Mark, about saying, Hey, there's no statistical value of therapeutics. Now again, nuanced, it's still pre, you know, uh, we have this stuff, right? And now the WHO, a member of the WHO, talks about how, now this has been, I think, pulled out of context, talking about lockdowns and that it's not necessary. And what was the quote I have here that I wanted to see? I don't think I have right here. But basically, it's been taken out of context to really be trying to say that it should not be basically the, the default means by which we handle the pandemic. And now we have, uh, what is it called? The Barrington, what is it called? The Barrington, I don't know, Constitution. The Barrington Declaration. Yeah, Declaration. Yeah. Something fancy. Sounds something like, you know. So we have this going on now. We have the White House kind of taking this declaration and applying it to maybe a, a, a public policy now of, 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 of looking to now approach herd immunity and that be the solution, right? It's, so we have, we have basically kind of tongue-in-cheek this idea of, hey, therapeutics aren't working, uh, the death rates aren't increasing, let's just go to herd immunity. And so now we have this Barrington Declaration. What's going on? Even, Stephen, I just saw there's a dude from Harvard, from the medicine. He's, he's, on, he's spearheading this. He's, he's in your building somewhere, hanging out, probably sipping a cup of joe. But what's, what's, what's going on with this? So the, I, I'll say that the, the group that I work with at Harvard is, is, is puzzled by this, deeply so. <laughs> so, so. And I want to preface that by saying that, like, so from, from the beginning and, and certainly still, like, we, we recognize and, and are very mindful of the fact that the non-pharmaceutical interventions, things like lockdowns, but even dis certainly distancing and testing even is, is a, there's a social burden and, and real both economic and social cost to all of those things. So I don't, I definitely don't want to make it sound like we're, we're, we're minimizing the costs of any of those things, but this, this argument about herd immunity has surfaced repeatedly over the course of the pandemic. And at each point, as far as I can tell, the same reasons why it's been a bad idea remain the same. And a big part of it comes from the fact that it's, it's sort of setting up this false dichotomy, I think, yeah. between either doing 
a full scale lockdown or doing nothing. And I think it ignores a lot of the progress that we've made both epidemiologically and clinically over the course of this pandemic. So, so what, what this declaration is proposing is essentially that everybody who's not in one of the specified high risk categories just goes about their lives as normal. And the people who are in high risk categories should find ways to protect themselves and public health officials should help them to find ways to, to protect themselves. Of course, the issue is that we're, our, our society doesn't exist in hermetically sealed population groups, and that if there's more virus circulating in, in the community, then more people in these high-risk groups will be exposed. That's just a matter of fact. And so I think that adopting this, um, this notion of, of herd immunity, you know, there's, in the declaration, there's, there's, no, there's no statement about any of the technologies that we have available, like rapid testing, for example, that would really help make this possible while still allowing people who are infected and infectious to limit their contacts with other people, presumably because that would actually undermine the bottom line of developing immunity in the population. You know, th this declaration is actually aimed at spreading disease is the idea is that it should spread in low risk populations and that by building up immunity in the population, then that will protect the high risk populations. But I just don't think at this point that that, and again, there's, there is, there is a balance here between you know, risks and benefits and acting in the absence of evidence, but needing to make some decision. So one of the issues that I take with it is that we don't know how long immunity lasts. We don't know the the dynamics of immunity yet. And I think that adopting a herd immunity approach is a pretty risky proposition when those things are still unknown. I mean, we, I, I anticipate that SARS-CoV-2 is going to continue spreading in the population pretty much indefinitely. And so how are we going to deal with that? We, herd immunity is not going to stop the pandemic. It's not going to stop the spread of this virus. And we don't really know what the post-pandemic period is going to look like, other than that it will probably include continued spread of the virus. So I think that in the meantime, while while we're um, dealing with the virus, sort of going back to what we were talking about before, that it's 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 better to sort of maintain cases at a, at a lower level, because then that avoids these overshoots and these spikes in infections and cases and deaths. And, and, and we have ways to do that. We have very clear ways to do that that aren't as disruptive as the sort of broad scale countrywide lockdowns that we had earlier this spring. We can be a lot more targeted. We can be a lot more temporally short while still, yeah, while still reducing the spread of infection. So, so the, the idea is, is kind of puzzling to me because it seems to ignore a lot of the progress that we've made and just sort of say that we ought to surrender wholesale. But that's my reading of it. Mark, do you have anything to add to this? Just that, you know, I think that paying attention to, well, Dr. Fauci, for instance, is, is also calling this idea as being dangerous. And so, and I think having, a, having a, an understanding of what Stephen was saying, there's, and you alluded to this too, Matt, that there's this way that our information gets kind of flattened really quickly and then we jump to a conclusion. So we, we say things, you know, we see a, a preprint trial like that and we say, oh, therapeutics don't work, you know, and like, that's not, a, that's a, that's frankly a misreading of that data, right? But if then we use that as a presupposition for our next step, and yeah. and then also do this thing where we're saying, well, it's one or the other, then we do get into a dangerous situation. Um, and I think that having the ability and continuing to work, you know, everywhere we can into having nuanced conversations about these things, and conversations that are based in, in an understanding of sort of the complexity and the, as Stephen was saying, you know, he there's, 
I think there's a false narrative around, you know, we shut everything down for the sake of saving as many lives as possible, but we ignore things like mental health and we ignore things like economics and we ignore things. And I think that's just a, I'm not, I don't think that that's actually a real narrative. I think that's what people fear and that fear has happened. And that's what they fear is happening with epidemiologists. And, but it doesn't seem to me to be an accurate narrative about what's actually going on and the ways that those things are being weighed. And so the idea, you know, as Stephen has kind of proposed in his group from for a long time, this idea that, you know, I have to say, even though I've heard this a million times, it was not fun to hear you say that coronavirus, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is just going to circulate indefinitely within the community. Like, that's not what I want you to say. Knowing that that's mm likely our outcome at this point. You know, this, what Stevens Group has been and, and others have been proposing is this idea of we see and respond in the most agile way possible to peaks and hotspots. And one of the tools at our disposal, in addition to masks and hand hygiene and so physical distancing are intermittent, you know, lockdowns and things like that. And I think that unfortunately that we're going to have to figure out a way societally to deal with that and to have negotiations around that. And we're, we're having trouble doing that right now. Yeah. This just, I think exposes so many of the complexities of the situation. I think you nailed it, Mark. We're just, I had this great book. Have you guys read Decisive? And just the, the, the fallacy of trying to constantly go, go to an either or, like either you should do this or not. And then right away, you know, you're in a bad place for decision-making. And that's what I kind of feel like this, this idea of this herd immunity is it's like, well, it's, it's, and rather than like maybe grounded in science and being proactive, it's more of a reaction to the whole idea of a radical lockdown. And, and, and I love, Stephen, you've been contributing so many times over the months of just allowing the complexity of the situation to rise to the surface and deal with them and realize that this is a nuanced reality and that in the beginning, a lockdown was necessary. And, that, and the reason why was because we wanted to flatten the curve and which I think, which you brought up like two weeks ago, Stephen, which I think we forgot about, at least I did until you brought it back up. And that is, and on top of flattening curve, we didn't have a plan. And so until we have a plan, let's default to this, right? It wasn't like lockdowns, like this is, this is, this is the most virtuous thing we could do. This is the worst thing we could do. And it's the only thing we can do until a, we flatten the curve, which we did. There was a, so there was never a curve in certain places, but, but you know, answer, we didn't have a plan. We have a better plan. And what Steven, you're saying is we still, we have a good plan and some of the things we're not even using. So why don't we put put our efforts into using this and not swing the pin onto the other side, which causes another level of harm, right? Total freedom, right? right? But it's going to cause another devastation. We don't need to have, we can play the middle ground and kind of had not had the devastation. Mark, I think you, you, you took a breath that you wanted to say something. I, I, yeah. I, the other thing just that I'm thinking about and, and deserves, I think, putting another point on is that we should be careful in conflating economic productivity, right? And like participation in work and, you know, in our kind of work lives with the, with other forms of, you know, of good. And I think one of the things that I worry about is that sometimes in certain places they say, well, let's protect the economically productive sector of the population and, and using that as sort of a surrogate for, for worth, which feels really, to me that that is an implicit value statement that is uh, kind of deep within some of the presuppositions of those recommendations. And that's the thing that we need to examine. So let's go, let's, let's get a little bit deeper and start to, you know, to have conversations about what are the presuppositions that are 
motivating some of these things. And, you know, let's not make it just about like days of work lost, you know, let's end in pivoting towards other, other ways of conceiving, like, how do we think about this? How do we think about care, you know, care of our communities, stewardship of our communities, and the, frankly, the value in a society for people who are not economically productive, there's huge value, you know, enormous value that is that, and, and that that's also an important piece of that, you know, you don't have to be, I think, necessarily, you know, bleeding heart, like, you know, let's take care of everybody. And really, you know, to, to recognize that a society is stronger when we have connection to, you know, to other generations, when we, and when we honor, you know, honor these connections and these kind of this depth of relationship in a way that's not merely economic and, and how important that is in, you know, time when we've, we're forgetting like by the day, how to talk to each other and forgetting by the day about how to have deep conversations about values, you know, across ideological divides that I think that those things are are very, very important. There's so many things that I feel like we're kind of almost in this meta narrative, you guys, that we've been talking about since early in March. We brought David Brooks or I brought David Brooks back in March. And I see it here as well as we're uh, this I'll put it in the show notes. It's a great article. I haven't even finished it yet. It's basically about the chipping away of trust, societal trust. And this is just a reflection of where we've been uh, for such for a long time. And as Stephen, you mentioned uh, back in April, the sense of fever pitch, and it's just raised it to a fever pitch where we live in this moment of distrust of people around us, not just institutions, but people. And this great article I'll put in there is from The Atlantic. Uh, Ride's idea that when we are suspicious or distrustful of people around us, we have a tendency then to become tribal, right? We get a band of people around us against a common foe, and then we have a tendency to then gravitate towards extreme conclusions and theories because it's a safe place. When you when you feel vulnerable, when you feel distrustful, when you don't, we feel like you're under attack all the time, you know, on social media. Because if I publish this or I put this up, how am I going to be perceived? How am I going to be thought? If I'm constantly feeling this inundation of being threatened by the people around me, I need to find a safe place, and I need to find it in the easiest way possible. And extreme thoughts and philosophies are oftentimes those 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 safe places by which you can come together in an emotional reality and defend something. And I kind of feel like this is part of that part of that equation of we have the lockdown, the anti-lockdown, and then we're living out of a moment of distrust rather than dealing with the complexities, which really is hard, especially when, yeah, I get it. I am frustrated. I'm alone. I hate this. I can't stand the pandemic. Even though we have a podcast, doesn't doesn't mean that I enjoy it by any means. I mean, the only thing I like is I get to hang out with a couple of dudes once a week. But then what do I do? The other six days in 22 hours. I just suffer in some way, right? And I'd be a little dramatic. I mean, there's there's high points, but I don't want this at all. But then to have to sit here and then mentally stay in this complex reality of the nuanced approach of how we how I ought to live my life, it's hard. Do I want to sometimes just move to an extreme measure? Yeah, because it just seems a little bit easier. And I'm just tired, guys. Right, I'm just tired. So, this is my 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 event. But uh, I feel like that's kind of behind it, all this stuff, as well. Well, before we we sign off here, uh, Steve, I just wanted to put this, and I mentioned this off the, but but I wanted to state this or have the people hear this. There was in this article from about Sweden. And it was fascinating to me about how lumping Sweden and America as being a category on its own, which is funny because we had different approaches, but we are both in the same mm-hmm. category as we didn't do a very good thing. 
And there's other people like South Korea, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Finland, Denmark, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, New Zealand, Australia, who are in a different camp, who acted early. But it's fascinating that we both have really dismal results. And for those people who are looking for a herd, herd philosophy, it hasn't panned any different than what we're doing with, with this right now. And one of the things that mentioned at the end is that talking about herd immunity and the idea to try to achieve it, the article mentioned that shouldn't have been a surprise after all herd immunity to an infectious disease has never been achieved without a vaccine. Uh, just before we end, I wanted to know, is that true? And is there something behind that or nuance that maybe I'm just not getting what they're trying to say to clear the the clutter from that statement. Yeah, I mean, I think here it's the that that statement is actually referring to, I think, what we hope the outcome of herd immunity will be, which is the end of transmission of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. And, and they're right. I mean, the only the only infection that we've actually managed to eradicate is is smallpox. All of the rest of them that we we well, so I mean, that's not so. The original SARS virus, for example, had a very small outbreak, and then we never really heard from it again. So for things like that have had small outbreaks like that, there, there have been eradications as well. But for things that have really had widespread transmission, really the only one we know about that we've eradicated is is, uh, is smallpox, and, and that was through the help of a vaccine, for sure. So I think the idea here is that we, we may well achieve herd immunity of a sort to COVID-19, but like flu, like the other coronaviruses, herd immunity can build up and then we can lose it again, both through waning immunity and also through new people being born into the population who are susceptible to the virus. And so herd immunity is a dynamic thing. It's not just something you achieve and then have achieved for all time. And so I think that's, some, that's, that's also one of the, these implicit narratives that, that I think is, is sort of starting to break open here is that herd immunity does not necessarily mean sort of our, our, our savior from, from this. Mm-hmm. And so even when we adopt strategies aimed at herd immunity, while that sounds like maybe a shortcut to the end of our suffering, I, 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 I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Okay. That's great. I just wanted to hit that. So basically you're telling me, Stephen, there will never be a herd immunity merit badge in Boy Scouts because it just never ends. You won't get that merit badge. You get the first aid, you get the first aid one, wilderness survival. You'll never have herd immunity because it will never end and you will That's never right. get your Eagle Scout <laughs> merit badge. Anyway, I'm an Eagle Scout. It's had to mention that. Drop that. Thank you so much, guys, for, for coming on in. It's good to see you guys. You know, we did a few things we didn't mention at the very beginning, just the common stuff. If you can leave a review, we love it. Uh, thank you. We had someone give a wonderful contribution. We have everything paid off. Thank you so much for all of your help and support. If anyone wants to continue just to help us with the monthly small things and upkeeps that we have to do, you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. A little $5 a month helps us go a long way. But thank you so much for helping us get everything paid off. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please leave a review. If you want to get a hold of Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R. Again, I want to say Mickey Mouse on Twitter. And then as well as you want to contact us, let us know how you're doing across the country. Still haven't heard from you, uh, Fergal. Hopefully you're doing well in Ireland. Matt at livingthereal.com. I'm going to keep calling you out until you listen to an episode. Take care, everyone, and we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.